Hey y'all, welcome back to the lab. Uh, so this will be part two of our first lecture. Um, as I gave a disclaimer in the first um, episode, or in the first part of this lecture, this is a particularly long lecture. I've actually have 11 pages of lecture notes to go through. Um, so part one covered uh, what SARS-CoV-2 is, uh, how it presents, um, some uh, measurements of its severity, as well as uh, availability of treatments. Um, now, with part two, I'm just going to go ahead and jump into um, the essential uh, uh, biology of viruses, kind of relate that back to COVID-19, um, and then we're going to start discussing vaccines, again, more pertinent to COVID-19, and then we're going to wrap up with what an emerging infectious disease is. So I think... Um, if you like the basic science behind a few things, I think you'll really enjoy this part too. So uh, with that, let's go off to the races. So what is a virus? A virus is a non-living infectious biological agent. Uh, we consider it non-living because it cannot reproduce on its own. It requires a host cell that it must in fact hijack the machinery in order to reproduce and um, make more of itself. Now it's biological because viruses are just essentially floating pockets of uh, DNA or RNA, which are two types of nucleic acids. Um, so just a brief recap, I'm not sure if many of you would be familiar with the central dogma of, of molecular biology, which basically states things go from DNA, the RNA, the protein. Uh, DNA is like the big old instruction manual. Um, RNA is the more readable portion of it uh, that directs then the synthesis of proteins. And we'll come back to this in a bit. Um, but I do wanna say that SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus and this plays a huge role into why we're seeing variants emerge. And so um, how does a virus begin the infectious cycle? And so a virus requires to attach to its target cell. It needs to, we call this the attachment phase. And how does it accomplish that? Well, it accomplishes that using uh, proteins on its surface that stud its surface. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the previous uh, podcast or not, but the fun fact is that uh, the reason why uh, we call uh, coronavirus coronaviruses virus uh, coronaviruses coronaviruses. It's because if you look under uh, an electron microscope of the virus, you see it's studded with all these surface proteins, and it looks like a little crown. Hence, coronavirus. Um, so, a little fun fact there, if you have any of that for Jeopardy. Um, so, with these proteins on the surface, it, they're able to um, interact with proteins on um, the surface of target cells in kind of a lock and key model. So they come in, they're a good fit. Hey, the virus know it founds its, um, its, its host cell, its good host cell, and it's able to then begin, um, it's able to then get its genome into the cell in some sort of way. And so, um, so the, the take home message from here is that, um, Really, the surface proteins on the virus determines the cell type it can infect. It could be only a few types of cells or many types of cells. It just really depends on what, uh, how the virus is built. Um, and so, in terms of COVID nine, in terms of SARS CoV two, um, it uses its surface spike protein to bind to what's called the ACE two receptor on susceptible cells. And you find this. Um, you find this receptor, um, ACE2, in the lower respiratory tract, specifically on type 2 uh, pneumocytes. 
Um, and so following, like I said, following the attachment then, the virus is then able to enter the cell um, in some way, which I'm, there's three ways, I'm not really gonna discuss them here, just know it gets into the cell, it dumps its genomic context and contents in there, and from then, um, the genome starts directing the cell to produce new viral particles. Now, this can really stress the cell. It could alter its metabolism. And so um, this can potentially kill the cell. And most virus, viral infections do kill the host cell um, by one way or another. Um, so uh, the viruses are then leaving the cell and it could kill the cell or not. It really depends on how the virus uh, leaves. But if it does kill the cell, you get enough cells killed, you can start seeing um, uh, tissue and organ dysfunction, which can lead to uh, pathohistiological changes you can see under the microscope, as well as clinical signs and symptoms. Um, however, it's not just the virus that can produce the damage or produce uh, the signs and symptoms. When you are infected with anything, um, your immune system is alerted, um, and so it does like produce the signs of inflammation. It does produce the, you know, the fever, um, and all that too. Not only that, especially when it comes to virally infected cells, your immune system will kill those infected cells. Um, so really the, the, symptom, the symptomology of a disease is not only the pathogen itself, but it also could be the immune response. Um, so... Now that we kind of know the basic way a virus works, we can start exploring as to why it's pretty hard to treat a lot of viral infections. Um, usually you just have to write out a viral infection and just take in supportive therapy, you know, keeping your fluids, rest, take Tylenol or Advil if you need to, um, to kind of manage, you know, the aches, pains, and fever. Um, so unlike bacteria, you know, there's not much uniqueness, quote unquote, to a virus's biochemistry. Um, it, it takes our own biochemistry to propagate itself. So the risk is that if you can create a viral therapy, you may end up inadvertently harming the host cell and end up producing more um, harm than a benefit. Um, so, but you do have viruses that do have unique gene products. Um, for example, reverse transcriptase in HIV or integrase in HIV or um, what's called um, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase in RNA viruses. So you can develop drugs to hit those. Um, unfortunately, some drugs may be very similar to normal things you still find in human cells. Um, so that's why when you're on antiretroviral therapy for HIV, you may um, be at risk for delponemia, even though the drug is meant to um, target you know, the HIV protein reverse transcriptase, it's still slightly similar enough that, you know, cells in your body can still use it. Um, so really that being said, there are a few treatments out there that can help manage viral illness. Um, and these treatments do take a long time to develop as well. Um, there's a whole entire process to it. And so, especially with the risk it puts, you know, the host at, you can expect that process can be a little more drawn out. Um, so not only does the biology of a virus make it um, harder to treat, but also they can evolve. Um, so you do have different types of viruses. Um, in terms of humans, you have DNA viruses, RNA viruses, and uh, retroviruses. And 
Um, when it comes to the RNA viruses like SARS-CoV-2 and retroviruses like HIV, you have what's called a really high mutation rates in these viruses just by the nature of how they reproduce and replicate themselves in the host cell. Um, so these mutations uh, occur in the viral genome and this in turn can change the viral protein products. So um, this can make it, these, these, uh, these mutated proteins may bind uh, the drugs you know, less efficiently or perhaps it's on a surface protein and your immune system no longer recognizes um, the uh, part of the surface of the virus that it was trained to way back when. So evolution of viruses does play um, also another role in making treatments very tricky to develop. And so um, the mutation rates are, are, example, are, are a reason, for example, why patients on, on um, antiretrovirals really have to have strict adherence to it because if they start missing dosages, they can have a rebound in, the, um, in their viral load, which potentially can mean they're producing these uh, resistant variants in their body. Uh, not only that, it's also another reason, for example, why we need a new flu vaccine every year or should be getting one every year. Now, um, we do see variants emerging for SARS-CoV-2. And based on what I just told you of the basically inherent um, mutations found in RNA viruses, it should really come to no surprise we've been hearing about these uh, variants emerge. It, 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 I'm not surprised at all. Um, so the thing is that the, you know, the California variant, the UK variant, the Brazil variant, South Africa variant, any of the ones emerging are not necessarily the whole picture. Those only represent a fraction of all the ones that are out there because each infection technically can produce a new variant or variants. Um, so wh why do these, uh, why does a certain variant become more prevalent in a region? Well, in a nutshell, it has to do with basically this evolutionary race of to create the better virus. So I'm going to define the better virus as one that does not kill the host cell. It produces a milder illness. Um, so you're able to go more on, you're get you're, the virus is able to be, uh, less detectable, so to speak, um, outwardly speaking, uh, you can still have, you know, diagnose it with, um, your molecular diagnostics. Um, and it's probably able to reproduce and infect more individuals because it kind of starts flying under the radar. Um, or it can infect with a greater efficiency. Now, uh, this may most likely mean that in the attachment phase of the virus, um, it just be, it's able to bind better to the host cell. Um, so for example, maybe these variants um, are better, produced spike proteins that bind tighter to the ACE2 receptor we find on you know, those lung cells. So it becomes more efficient at infecting the host. Because uh, like I said in the previous podcast, um, not every exposure to a pathogen is guaranteed to cause disease. And this is one of the factors, is that you have to look at the idiosyncrasies of that certain pathogen you're looking at, like, okay, is it gonna be really efficient at actually attaching itself, at getting in and doing its thing? And so um, eventually, you know, the, the better viruses start out-competing the less um, competitive viruses, the poorer viruses, so to speak. Um, 
And so the concern is that with the generation of variants, it could mean that vaccines may not be as effective or treatments down the road. Um, but as we will discuss in a second, um, the nature of the available vaccines actually makes them easier to kind of um, tweak and get them out faster than traditional vaccines. So what is a vaccine? A vaccine is a drug intended to induce an immune response such that when you re-encounter that pathogen, uh, either one, it, you have no infection, um, two, it reduces transmission, or three, uh, you have less severe illness. And so uh, really the target of vaccines is to produce an antibody response. Um, so we have circling antibodies in your body. These can bind to you know, the bacteria, the virus, or what have you, and prevent it from infecting cells and lead to a better clearance by the immune system, either by killing it, well, yeah, basically by killing it. Um, and so what these antibodies target is they target surface proteins on the pathogen itself, or even maybe surface sugars, uh, like we do see, I think it's in, in, a, in one of the uh, bacteria that causes um, pneumonia. So it's antibodies, you know, it's either going to be a target of sugar or a protein. In terms of viruses, it's proteins. Um, so with vaccines, they're not always easy to develop. Um, there are kind of a lot of considerations you have to uh, take into account. So for the first one, um, your body fights off different types of pathogens in different ways. So uh, for pathogen A, maybe all you need is an antibody response, such as for a bacteria. But maybe for pathogen 2, a virus, you know, maybe you need an antibody response as well as what we call a cell-mediated response. Um, so, you know, antibodies are really good at clearing out stuff that's circulating or outside the cell. But once it infects inside the cell, those antibodies can't get in. Um, there may be exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, um, once something goes inside, you're going to need what's called a cell response. Basically, you're going to have to train your body to create what are called killer T cells to identify those infected cells and clear them out. Um, not only that, with a vaccine, you have to have the right chemical cocktail to tell your body to produce that immune response. So uh, from a theoretical standpoint, I can give you, I can inject a protein in you um, and it may not necessarily induce an immune response because I didn't, create what's called the inflammatory milieu. Um, so that's why when you hear about certain vaccines, you hear the word adjuvants. And what that basically means is that it's a chemical that's put in the vaccine to trick your body into thinking there is an infection. And that sets up your immune response. And so with vaccines, you do need to have that chemical cocktail in there. Um, not only that, you have to then tell your body which what exactly you need to target on that pathogen, on that virus, on that bacteria. So with viruses, for example, yeah, you have uh, surface proteins on the outside, but you have also proteins on the inside. So really logically speaking, you do not want to create a vaccine that attacks the stuff that's inside. You need to create one that attacks the stuff on outside. So um, you, you have to kind of figure out what that's going to be. Um, secondly, you know, ideally you would induce uh, memory in the, in the vaccine individual. Memory being um, you kind of had that initial immune response, but now your body is like ready to fight if it encounters that pathogen once again. So you have to demonstrate, it would, ideally speaking, you would demonstrate there is immunological memory from these vaccines. 
another consideration is cost. So you do want to make them uh, cost effective so you can have them readily available to not only the rich, but to the poor, and not only to highly developed countries, but um, not as developed countries. Um, and then the last point to drive home with how when, when we consider developing vaccines is the safety of these vaccines, um, as well as clinical trials to de uh, determine if they are actually uh, worthwhile. So those always take time. Um, and just to break it down for you, there tend to be um, four uh, phases of clinical trials, five, and we'll get into number five um, more towards the end of this. Uh, so really you have the preclinical testing, which is basically you inject the um, vaccine into a test animal and see if there's any adverse um, side effects or any toxicity. Then uh, phase two, one, two, and three, then start testing um, for safety and toxicity in humans, um, if it's doing what you want it to do, and then if it actually works. Um, that will be a separate office hour or, or lecture, but that's just give you the overview of how those trials work and why sometimes it does take longer to develop vaccines or drugs in general, because it has to go through preclinical testing, phase one, phase two, phase three, review, approval, and, and all that. Um, so we do have several types of vaccines that we can um, use. So the first one is what we call the live attenuated vaccine. And what that basically means is that you take a weakened version of the pathogen and you inject it in a person you want to vaccinate. And so the question is, how do we get that weakened version of the pathogen? Well, there's two ways in general you can do it. The first way you can do it is you actually go in and you can modify the pathogen's genome. Uh, you could take out stuff that makes it likely to replicate or make it dangerous and kind of just have it there. Um, you reduce its... Uh, it's virulence in that manner. Um, another way you can do, which actually it's pretty cool, is that you actually take the virus, for example, and you culture it in susceptible cells. Um, now, these cells may be abnormal in that they're not the usual host cell. For example, let's say we're examining a, um, a human virus, and you find like, hey, it can infect rabbit cells, and not as efficiently, but it still does. So you end up changing the virus in such a way and under these abnormal conditions where you, you select it to be less virulent or less able to produce um, severe disease in humans because you're passing it under abnormal conditions and you're kind of tailoring it to the, uh, to the cultured cells. So you're able to take that, inject it in humans, and get your response. Um, so the, the good thing about live attenuated vaccines is that they produce an immune response most like the natural infection. Now, there is a nuanced detail in that, and I'm going to circle back around to that. Um, but generally speaking, you're going to get your guaranteed almost immunological memory, and you're going to get your antibodies. If it's a virus, you're going to get that cell immunity as well for those killer T cells. Um, so, again, live attenuated vaccines are great for viruses. Um, so, the, the risk here, though, is you really don't want to give these type of vaccines to what are called immunocompromised patients. Uh, basically, that means their immune systems really aren't intact for one reason or another. Maybe there's inherited defect, or maybe there's just some medical treatment in the background that's suppressing their immune system. Maybe they're an organ transplant, T. Uh, maybe they're undergoing chemotherapy. Maybe they have an autoimmune disorder that needs to be under control, so they're also under immunosuppressive therapy. Um, so you don't want to give these individuals live attenuated vaccine. It's because there's always a risk 
Um, less so when you actually genetically modify the pathogen, more so if you do the abnormal passing in the culture, that these viruses can occur uh, compensating mutations, either reverting the originally mutated sequence back to this old self, or gaining what are called compensatory mutations in other sites in its genome to revert it back to its original virulence. And if that happens, you know, these people who are immunocompromised are not going to have um, the tools to fight it off, and they're at, at risk of a, of a full-blown infection. Now, we, the other type of vaccine you can do is what's called a dead vaccine, and it's very self-explanatory. You basically kill the pathogen. Um, and there's, you know, two ways you can do this. You can heat kill it by exposing it to high temperature, or you can chemically kill it. The drawback to that is that you have to be really careful of how you apply either killing technique so that you don't really change um, your targets. So heat can unfold proteins, and then, you know, it's not really the natural state anymore, so you may induce an immune response to something that will never be encountered naturally. So it's a moot point. Same thing with chemical killing. Um, you may uh, shape now the target protein in such a way, again, it's unnatural, quote-unquote, where the immune response, the memory response, will be like, you know, this is a new target. Like, we've never seen it before. So, you know, what's the point of training us? Um, so... Um, with the dead vaccines, however, you only produce an antibody response, and you may require boosters um, as well. So there, it's not really the best against viruses. It's more so bacteria. Um, you can take it one step further, actually, and develop what's called a subunit vaccine, where it's only a portion of the pathogen. Um, so you see this in toxoid vaccines, like for tetanus, you actually inactivate the, um, the toxin itself. You inject it in your patient, and you induce an immune response. Again, it's only going to be an antibody response because you do not have the um, you don't have the right setup to induce that cell um, that cell um, memory, and I'll get into that in a office hours uh, section. Um, so the last two types of vaccines I'm going to discuss here are RNA vaccines and recombinant vaccines because they're the most relevant right now to um, getting COVID under control. So. Um, RNA vaccines, uh, despite what you may hear from your friends or your family or whomever, they're not a new development. Um, they didn't suddenly appear out of nowhere, out of the blue. Um, actually, they've been in the works for maybe the last 20, 30 years. Um, actually, when I was in grad school about four years ago, we read a paper about um, how some researchers were trying to develop uh, RNA vaccine against Ebola. Actually, that was probably one of my most favorite papers I ever read. It was actually it was a really cool paper. Um, but anyways, back to the main point. RNA vaccines are not in recent development. They didn't appear overnight. They've been there. Um, we already had the basic science done and, you know, ready to go in, you know, situations like this. And so uh, the question is now, well, how do these really work? Because, again, there's a lot of misinformation about that, I feel, especially when I hear it's going to change my DNA. It does not. Um, so just starting with the basics is that, uh, like I said, the central dogma of molecular biology, you have DNA, goes into RNA, gets turned into the protein. Um, so you can take that protein you want to target, your vaccine target, and you can figure out the sequence of RNA that generated that protein. 
um, or you can just take it strictly straight from the viral genome. Uh, it may be a little more complicated. It's better maybe to reverse engineer it. Um, that's just more of a nuanced detail. I, I won't really get too much into on this podcast. Um, so you get your RNA molecule that's going to produce that protein. You take that, you put it in delivery system. Um, delivery system, um, in this case, is going to be a, um, a lipid coating, a lipid molecule. Uh, they make it just a little sphere of its own RNA. And then you're going to take that, you're going to inject it into yourself. And what happens is that your cells take up this uh, pocket of RNA and starts producing that protein. And I will put a disclaimer in that if you do come across the Moderna or Pfizer study, you will most likely see um, it's a nucleoside modified RNA vaccine. Now, that may scare you, but it shouldn't. Um, because like I gave you in my example prior is that you have to have the right chemical cocktail to induce the immune response. And by modifying the RNA in such a way, you do a few things. You can improve stability under storage conditions. Uh, you may improve stability in vivo or inside the body so it has enough time to act. You also can make it what's called more immunogenic. You're able to induce an immune response um, to set up the immune uh, reaction you need to actually get that immunity. So please, if you do come across a study or hear you know, fear-mongering with nucleoside um, modified, it just means it's either a way to make it uh, more immunogenic to make sure you're guaranteed that immune reaction. So going back to this, so then you get the RNA in your cell, it starts producing that protein, as it should, and then uh, you're basically, your immune system is, sees it and is like, hey, you're not supposed to be here, I'm not going to fight against you, I'm going to bruise the antibodies, and since um, this sort of mimics a viral infection, you will get the cell-mediated immunity most likely. Um, I think right now we're still... I didn't really, in the, in the study I read from Pfizer, they really didn't mention too much about it. It was more uh, epidemiological investigation, less so a basic science investigation. But um, based on what I know from immunology, I, I'm pretty sure this would also induce um, that cell-immediate response. I would need to look more into that, actually. Um, but we do get the antibodies for sure. And so uh, what these antibodies do is they can prevent the virus from entering other host cells. Um, so, uh, sorry about that. Some keys just dropped. <laughs> uh, just, so going back to, um, the change your DNA claim. So RNA vaccine should not change your DNA. Um, it's actually really, really hard to do that. And the way these vaccines are designed from what I read, it's virtually impossible. Um, you would actually need a separate set of proteins included in that vaccine or something to encode those proteins to do it. Um, not only that, the RNA shouldn't be entering the cell nucleus where that could even be possible. So there's a lot more variables to consider and it's a lot trickier to develop. Um, so no, an RNA vaccine will not change your uh, DNA whatsoever. Also because the RNA, just the RNA that's introduced in the cell, just like our RNA is going to be degraded over time. There is going to be a turnover event. So again, this also points to Maybe a fear that, oh, you know, if I inject myself with this RNA, you know, won't my own body attack those cells that were quote unquote infected? And that's a very valid point, but no, it will not. Um, for one, you're going to have that turnover, turn, turnover of the RNA. It's not going to persist forever. Secondly, just how RNA turns over, so do surface proteins turn over. And so you will eventually get rid of that, but that immune response will still persist. 
if that makes sense. So with this vaccine, uh, you're not going to change your DNA and you're not going to be attacking your own cells. Just uh, one, because there's no way for these, this vaccine to even uh, dream of becoming what it needs to become to get incorporated into your DNA. And secondly, um, just because of the timing between uh, inoculating yourself and the onset of the immune response. And so um, now we'll discuss the AstraZeneca, Oxford, and Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So this is a different uh, platform for the vaccine. It's actually really similar to that developed to eradicate smallpox in the 60s and 70s. Um, and this is what we call a recombinant vector vaccine. And actually, these are pretty cool as well. Um, so what that basically means is that you're taking a portion of uh, your, your target and you're putting it into another virus. Uh, carrier virus. Now, these carrier viruses have been modified so they don't reproduce within your body. Um, they also need to be viruses your body has never ever seen before because it could induce an immune response and that could, I'm sorry, it could induce the memory response and prevent it from doing what it's got to do. So what, what AstraZeneca Oxford did is that they used a chimpanzee adenovirus uh, vector. So chimpanzee is because we should never have seen you know, that virus before. So it's guaranteed really to work in us. And Johnson & Johnson, they're using their own proprietary viral platform, which um, I really have no information beyond that, uh, just because all the information so far we have from Johnson & Johnson are coming from press releases. There's no yet um, p uh, publications for peer review uh, available yet. And so... Um, the way the recombinant vector vaccines works is you, you modify these carrier viruses, you inject them in yourself. Um, they, you know, attack quote unquote host cells. They get taken up and they induce immune response. It's very then similar to the RNA vaccine where then the DNA within those viral vectors um, is then uh, made into RNA. The RNA is made into protein. And again, the concern is that these viruses, these platforms will change your DNA. No, it's not. Um, AstraZeneca has released, um, has claimed there is no evidence to support that idea. And even then, um, gene splicing recombination in our cells, it's a really tricky process. It only occurs under certain conditions, and I really can't see this happening with the conditions under which we're administering the vaccine. Um, so again, there, there's, again, no risk of these vaccines changing your DNA. That's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, and for people who don't really understand how these vaccines work. So I'm really helping, I'm really hoping, I'm, I'm starting to clear up these misconceptions for those for you who are listening. And so um, now let's, let's get this more pertinent to COVID. So these vaccines are developed against the spike protein found on COVID. Um, and so they're all gonna be targeting the S protein. And when we hear about the information that comes out of these studies, uh, we, hear, we hear a term called efficacy. Um, efficacy is not the number of cases that per, were prevented in the study. Rather, they were, it's the relative reduction in the risk of contracting the illness or um, of it have how of relative risk reduction and how severe your illness will be. So 
I'll just frame with an example to make it make more sense. So I believe it was the Moderna vaccine that reported a 95% efficacy, more or less, um, meaning that the participants who were vaccinated in their trials uh, were 20 times less likely to be um, COVID positive versus the control group. So those who were vaccinated only had shared 5% of the risk that the unvaccinated individuals did. So that's how we should interpret efficacy. Um, uh, but a, a more nuanced detail is how we get that efficacy number. It really depends how you define your metric of efficacy. Um, so I'm sure we all have heard that despite getting the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, you still need to wear a mask and practice social distancing. You may ask yourself, well, why is that? I'm vaccinated, I should be protected. Well, um, Here's we get into the nuanced detail of what efficacy is. So the way that Pfizer and Moderna set up their study, um, they did in two different ways to gauge how well their vaccine was working. One, they examined the number of symptomatic and uh, COVID positive patients or participants um, in their follow-up. Secondly, um, it was the severity of disease. Um, so between Pfizer and Moderna, there was 70,000 participants. So if you think about it, it becomes logistically impossible to be constantly swabbing and probably running these PCR testing on such a large group of people. So they have to have a happy medium, a middle road to follow. And that middle road was like, okay, we're going to probably examine the people who were, who were symptomatic and came in and tested positive. And we'll use that in our calculations of efficacy. And so they really didn't account for any people who were asymptomatic and, and SARS-CoV-2 positive. So that's why we really don't have too much data on them yet and to confidently say that these, these vaccines will prevent infection, but we can confident, confidently say they do pre uh, prevent symptomatic infection as well as um, severe disease. So even if we gain this vaccine, you know, for now we should still be practicing the mask wearing social distancing because there's really no data on these vaccines um, to prevent asymptomatic infection, but we do know they are effective against symptomatic infection and severity of disease. Um, now, the other nuanced detail here is that there is a difference in the immune response generated from natural infection of a respiratory virus versus that of being injected by one. So you do have two quote-unquote different types of immune systems in your body. You have the systemic immune system and you have the mucosal immune system. So the systemic immune system is one we're all familiar with. Like if you get a cut of your skin or let's say something inside of you that isn't the lungs or stomach gets infected. <coughs> Excuse me. And you have mucosal immunity, which is basically the part of the immune system that's responsible for protecting everything from your nose to your anus, your lungs included, um, as well as your reproductive tract and your urogenital tract. So those are all, they, the systemic immunity and mucosal immunity operate with the same principles. They're just a little different. Um, so injectable vaccines will not uh, produce mucosal immunity as far as I'm aware from what I've read um, and vice versa. Mucosal immunity may not necessarily produce uh, systemic immunity. So the question again is with these vaccines, like, okay, well, right now the goal of the vaccine is to prevent uh, severe illness, which is good. It's a good thing. And I'll get into that in, uh, reasoning why in just a little bit. Um, but down the road, we may hear chitter chatter about developing maybe inhalable vaccines um, to better protect our lungs, our nose, our respiratory tract from actually being actively infected. 
um, and that may be more effective against asymptomatic carriers. But right now, this is all conjecture, but I do want to let you go. You all know why there's still chatter chatter of like, hey, even if you get vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna, why you should still wear masks, practice social distancing, et cetera. Now, uh, in terms of the AstraZeneca Oxford study, that one's actually pretty interesting um, in that they conducted the study a little different um, where they actually did swab their participants um, in their interim analysis, maybe halfway. So there may be data available from AstraZeneca Oxford to actually uh, to lend evidence that it, their vaccine may pre- prevent asymptomatic infection. Um, so I would be really interested to see that when those results are published. Um, and with Johnson & Johnson, um, uh, it's important for two reasons right now. Uh, it's being conducted at a time where you do see the emergence of the variants. So now you can test if it's effective against the variants. Secondly, it's being conducted in regions where those variants are prevalent. So that's uh, why Johnson & Johnson right now is a big deal. Um, and then in terms of how these vaccines, what they're trying to do, it's like I said, they're trying to really, I believe, um, reduce the severity of disease. Why is this important? Well, it, it pretty much prevents your hospitals from filling up to capacity and from overwhelming your healthcare resources and providers. So again, you know, we're trying to, trying to get this under control as best as we possibly can, and there has to be compromise sometimes. And right now that compromise is... is uh, reducing the incidence of severe illness. And hopefully uh, we will have data at some point in time to really uh, showcase that maybe asymptomatic infections can be prevented and you can actually blunt the transmission of this pathogen. So um, why should you get vaccinated? I guess I should also drive that point home. Uh, why is it important and why should you care? Um, again, I just mentioned that with vaccination, you can potentially reduce the burden on the healthcare system and healthcare resources. We only have a finite number of providers, um, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, etc., as well as ICU beds. Moreover, vaccination is a possible step towards eradication, like we saw in smallpox. Um, now, eradication is not as simple as being vaccinated, but it does play a part in it in that um, if you reduce the number of susceptible individuals, you could potentially snub out uh, the resource of hosts for these pathogens. But even if eradication is not possible, you can still gain what's called herd immunity. And I'm sure we all heard of that, especially after the Sweden experiment, um, which did not go as they planned, by the way. Um, so with herd immunity, at some point, you have a sufficiently, um, just like like I discussed with the eradication procedure, in herd immunity, you do have a sufficient uh, number of individuals vaccinated where it makes it harder for one uh, one case of infection to be propagated. So again, you kind of snub it, you nip it in the bud. But moreover, with herd immunity, you start protecting those who cannot be vaccinated yet. So like young babies, um, people who are immunocompromised. So it's a benefit to them as well. Um, so it doesn't spread to them. So you start really protecting everybody, which is why we call it herd immunity. Um, now... Uh, again, there is a disclaimer that with the variants emerging, there may be the need for booster shots to kind of update our immune systems and make sure we maintain that herd immunity and um, 
really also protect ourselves. Again, that's no surprise. Uh, I'm a, I would not be surprised if this becomes the new flu vaccine. And there is chitter chatter amongst researchers that coronavirus may, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus may be here to stay. Um, maybe we'll be lucky and it'll disappear just like uh, SARS did, the first SARS virus. I don't know. Um, but you know, just to put that out there. Um, now I do want to discuss the safety concerns really quick that uh, people do have with the vaccine. Um, so some do feel it was a rushed process. Now it wasn't really because the regulations were relaxed. I actually read this one article from Nature, a uh, reputable scientific journal, by the way, um, that said it, that acknowledged, yeah, historically speaking, vaccines have taken years to develop. Um, but in terms of right now, what's going on with the pandemic, it's not because uh, regulators are relaxing the standards. It's because there's so much money being pumped in to developing these vaccines that developers can take a larger financial risk if something doesn't work out. They can also start streamlining um, the clinical trials process. So for example, um, you typically have your clinical trials done um, sequentially. So you phase one and then you do phase two and then you do phase three. But in this case now, you have phase one and phase two combined, phase two and phase three combined. You start streamlining stuff and you get your data faster. Um, not only that, what the financial risk is that if something doesn't work out because maybe there was adverse side effects noted or maybe there was a toxicity in um, the animals, maybe there was a toxicity noted in the phase one patients or participants, um, you know, but you have, you can still develop these vaccines in mass to kind of streamline the process. But, you know, if it doesn't work out, it's not like you lost a lot of money. You maybe only lost a portion of your funding now. So really, um, the argument is that it's not so much you relaxed your standards to push out these vaccines. It's just you had so much money being pumped into them, you're able to take larger risks. And, you know, these risks did pay off for uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and all of them. Um, not only that, uh, developers must still conduct follow-up surveys. Uh, survey studies to monitor efficacy over time and to see if there's any uh, safety con or any uh, safety risks that may arise, adverse events, toxicity, etc. There has to still be follow-up studies. Um, and lastly, as I said before, RNA vaccines and recombinant vaccines, I've hinted, these platforms have existed for some time. They are not new. They do not pop up overnight. They've been here. And so we're able now to take the basic signs of what we know and manipulate it as, as we will. Um, lastly, um, since this, you know, another contention, oh, we didn't have the sequence of the virus. Well, you did. You had the sequence of the virus within a month, I believe, uh, from some Chinese institute. I forget which one. So the information was out there to start developing these vaccines. Um, another point to drive home is that all approved drugs, um, those outside, you know, the EUA, um, emergency youth authorization, they're still technically in phase four testing. And what that basically means is that uh, providers and prescribers are still monitoring for any adverse events that occur in the patients to which they prescribe uh, these drugs. Uh, these drugs. So um, the thing is that, yeah, these clinical trials may have a lot of participants in them, um, in the tens of thousands, but statistically speaking, it may not be a large enough number to detect adverse events. So you still have these, um, you know, this ongoing like phase four monitoring um, just to really see, okay, you know, 
Are there any long-term effects? Do we see any more adverse effects coming in? So that's with anything that your doctor can prescribe you. Um, and so now that we get, now that I mentioned um, adverse effects, I, you know, with any kind of immunological challenge, you always have a risk of that normal immunological event. Um, in the part one of this episode, I, I mentioned rheumatic heart disease and post-infectious glomerulonephritis. And those are two complications, um, potential complications of strep throat, which is why your doctor wants to treat you for strep throat as soon as possible to avoid that. Um, so more specifically, um, in rheumatic heart disease, you're ana you have antibodies raised against the strep bacteria that just so happen to cross-react with proteins found in your heart valves. And so that leads to heart valve scarring and can lead to what's called stenosis, um, which makes your heart work really harder and can lead to heart failure. Um, so that's outside the cons of vaccine. So you already can see that, you know, an immunological challenge, an immunological event can potentially lead to a adverse um, autoimmune or hypersensitivity reaction. It's not unheard of. Um, same thing with immune thrombocytopenia. There was a story on Yahoo I read that this was documented in a handful of patients. And basically in immune thrombocytopenia, you have uh, an immune, immune challenge that produces antibodies that just so happen to cross-react with your platelets. And it starts cleaning the platelets from your bloodstream and your platelet uh, numbers can drop um, to the point where you can start bleeding uncontrollably. Unfortunately, a patient did pass away from this. Um, but the take point, takeaway point from this is that, okay, um, you look at the numbers of these adverse effects occurring in these dosed patients and these vaccinated patients, and you have to compare them to the numbers of cases occurring in the undosed or unvaccinated population. Because you really can't say, oh my gosh, I had three adverse events taking this drug. Well, is it really related to the drug or is it just really the luck of your draw when it comes to your participants or patients? So you do have to compare those two numbers and see if they're statistically significantly different. Um, so that's really a risk with anything, with any vaccine, with any drug, um, even with the flu vaccine. Um, and so now we come to the last section of our, our vaccine talk, um, just regarding the variants. And so... Pfizer and Moderna have communicated confidence that their vaccines will work against the variants. Um, and as I said before, Johnson & Johnson is poised to actually test their vaccine against it. So Pfizer and Moderna uh, were testing in subjects uh, prior to our awareness of these emerging variants um, or major emerging variants, I should say. And Johnson & Johnson is now at a point of time where it can actually test its vaccine against them. Um, and as I said before, we should not really be surprised we're seeing variants emerge just because of the nature of this virus. It is an RNA virus and they're known to have high mutation rates. Um, and an infection can theoretically produce many variants in one host. Um, we are lucky, however, this virus is slowly mutating. So when something is slowly mutating, um, it doesn't necessarily, it could mean uh, the genome replicates uh, you know, with high accuracy but it also means that the stuff that can be changed, you can't change it too much, else you'll kill it or make it obsolete. So we're kind of lucking out right now with that. Um, so it, it brings me to this next point in that proteins, no matter if they're found in a virus, bacteria, our cells, our cat cells, you know, they've evolved to carry out specific functions and you can't change them too much sometimes, else 
you'll make a defective protein and there's really no point. You could lead to cell death or whatnot. You'll lead to some, some kind of stress. So there's this push from nature um, to keep things as close as possible to the original. Um, sometimes you will have uh, positive mutation events where it can make a protein better doing something. Um, other times you could have neutral mutation events where it really doesn't change things. And there's debate about neutral mutations and that'll be a separate discussion. Um, but again, you know, nature wants to keep things as close to the original as possible. So um, not only can mutations though impact the protein function, how it works, how it looks like, um, it can also impact our antibodies' abilities to recognize it. So that's just the concern is that uh, these variants may have mutations that can change the way the immune system recognizes it or how it, how it functions. Um, but the good thing is that with any immunological challenge, you don't produce just one type of antibody. You produce many types of antibodies. So it kind of covers a really um, a broad space, so to speak. There's a, there's a, uh, there's many flavors for your immune system to chain, or choose from. So we call this the polyclonal response. And so with this, you can maybe, you could have a potential carryover immunity from one variant to the next, which is why Pfizer and Moderna are very confident their um, vaccines will still work. And so um, this may help still produce, you know, taking the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine may still help produce or reduce the risk of severe illness from like, Maybe the variant one, variant two, variant three. Um, so it's this carryover immunity. But not only that, this carryover, immu carryover immunity may give us more time to tweak these vaccines. So don't panic. Um, and then, oh, there's actually one more point here. Uh, vaccines, um, they don't work overnight. They actually do take about two weeks for them to be... Um, basically effective. And that's just the nature of immune response. Your immune response always takes about two weeks to develop. And so uh, we've heard of cases of people getting sick or dying after receiving the vaccine. It's not really to do with the vaccine wasn't effective or killed them. Um, it just, it takes about two weeks for your body to respond to that. So please, if you do get vaccinated, still practice social distancing and wearing your mask uh, two, for at least two weeks and, until you get that final dosage, since um, the high efficacy rate was reported after two dosages. Um, and so really just to wrap up the second part of lecture um, before I go over time is just what an emerging infectious disease is. Um, so what it is is basically an infectious disease, an emerging infectious disease is one we've never seen before or it's increasing in incidence. Um, so examples would be HIV, Ebola virus, SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV, and Lyme disease. Um, a sizable portion of these emergent diseases are zoonoses, meaning they're coming from animals. Um, but they also include ones that have developed treatment resistance. So like uh, methicillin resistant staphylococcus um, aureus or MRSA. Now with the risk of emerging infectious disease, uh, we do not know too much about them when they do occur. So we may not have no ways to effectively control it, manage or treat these illnesses. Um, it, we could lack sufficient resources to implement just ba basic public health measures or to just try to manage it as best we possibly can. Um, and lastly, we have no prior immunity to these uh, emergency diseases whatsoever. So we have a very large subpopulation; population. It could just explode um, unless you, you win the genetic lottery. Um, and I'll discuss that in a subsequent podcast. 
So how do these diseases come about? How do they emerge? Well, um, they could already be existing pathogens that we just never encountered before. Um, so let's say you have a migratory event from one region to another and they bring something with them, right? It happens. And now this pathogen is saying, oh, there's more hosts I can infect now because there's no prior immunity here and it explodes, right? Um, there could also be because of urbanization. When you have people move into the cities and more crowded spaces, um, you're more likely then to transmit some kind of pathogen there because it's just a densely populated region. Uh, you could have accidental exposure. Let's say that you go into a forest or a jungle to hunt or clear land. You could expose yourself to something there and bring it back. Accidental exposure. Now, more interestingly, it could also be due to changes in the environment, um, either through climate change or conservation efforts. So climate change, you know, it can shift the habitats of certain host species, um, either maybe widening their, their habitat or moving it somewhere else, putting it in potential contact with us. Um, you may, with the conservation efforts, you may even expand a reservoir population or a reservoir species or host species where it's more likely than to encounter us. And this is what we saw with uh, Lyme disease, where we actually did increase the pool of um, hosts for the deer tick. And that's how it became uh, more common or how we saw an uptick in cases, <laughs> no pun intended, um, in Lyme disease in the human population. Not only that, Maybe it's just some kind of freak accident, a mutation event, an already existing pathogen that just made it uh, better at causing disease or pathogenic or producing more severe disease, more virulent, or helping it jump species. Um, and these changes can be very small or very large, and I'll discuss that in a subsequent lecture. Um, and just one last uh, point to drive home is that with emerging infectious disease, you know, the, area, the era of globalization of travel and trade really helps it make uh, makes it easier for it to spread faster and further. So um, that is concluding lecture one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, just some take-home points just from the two-part series, our lecture right now, is that SARS-CoV-2 is an emerging viral disease. We've never seen it before, which is why it's a really big deal right now. Um, early on, we did not really know much about it, how to control it, how to manage it, and we're still trying to figure out ways to do that. Um, you know, but the previous research done, the previous research and experience um, with SARS and MERS has helped shape our response. Just unfortunately, um, politics and misinformation has really hampered efforts to get this virus under control, especially here in the United States, which is why I'm doing this podcast. Um, COVID-19 can present as a spectrum of illness with anything from asymptomatic to critical illness. Um, and it does hit certain groups harder than others. I've seen the elderly, people of color, men, those are underlying health conditions. Um, treatments are still being investigated, but there is no cure. HCQ doesn't work, but remdesivir is promising for shortening hospital stays and dexamethasone is promising in reducing mortality in severe patients. And Convalescent plasma therapy is being investigated as also a possible treatment. The jury is still out, however. Um, but we are seeing promising vaccines, and I do encourage you to get whichever one you possibly can get your hands on. Um, just to protect yourself and, you know, give yourself peace of mind that you're not going to get as sick as those who are unvaccinated. So I just want to thank you for tuning, uh, for tuning in, and I really uh, hope you did enjoy this uh, lecture. I'm, I do apologize. That is fairly long. Um, I just uh, wanted to get as much information as possible. 
I will work on making subsequent podcasts not as long, unless you guys do like them long. Um, so please just let me know. Um, so with the next few lectures, I actually do want to take a focus on infectious disease, um, what it is, and then really begin a journey on just exploring how pathogens become successful in producing disease despite an immune response and how they evolve over time. And I already have like the next two or three already working in my head. Um, and I will have one um, next week around this time. Um, and I am planning an office hour to explain the immune response in general and how it relates to COVID and how we think uh, the virus is interacting with our immune response to uh, make us really sick. So uh, please feel free to reach out if you have any uh, comments or concerns, as I said in my syllabus lecture. Um, and I really do help, uh, hope you have a great rest of your day and lab is dismissed.